Jeremiah chapter 4. Our text tonight is verse 23 through 28. I want you to imagine with me, if you could, suddenly you wake up one day in an alternate reality. Your worst nightmares have come true. And you uh, find yourself all of a sudden living in this twilight zone experience where reality you know, no longer is there and everything bad seems to be happening. And your whole world is turned upside down. In fact, it's the opposite of utopia in this, in this dream, in this vision. Uh, you just want to wake up from it. Well, in our text tonight, in, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 28, Jeremiah, in a sense, he's getting a vision of what is ahead, and it's very, to use a phrase that's become very popular, it's very dystopian. You know, a lot of filmmakers these days uh, have presented scenarios, some of them making big bucks, uh, with film themes that are dystopian. What is dystopian? Uh, because our text tonight is very dystopian. Uh, and it is with purpose. God is trying to get the attention of these Jews, the, the, the people of Judah. He's trying to say, listen, your world is going to be turned upside down. And, and so he paints this picture. And he actually goes back to you know, the creation of the Garden of Eden when God created everything good, when God created literally utopia. And uh, he's going back to that time, but it's as if he's doing it all over again, but there's a whole different picture painted. And instead of a, a picture of utopia, it is a picture of dystopia. And by the way, dystopia is two Greek words together, uh, it's, and it literally means bad place. Like utopia means good place. But Jeremiah now, going back to, again, the creation of the world, creation of the Garden of Eden and paradise and he's painting a different picture and he's trying to lay this out and, he, and, and the picture really is this is he, he makes what's going to happen to Judah appear to be happening in a worldwide context so let's jump in and we're going to see three things tonight as we just work through this text most of it is dystopia it's just a bleak picture magnified uh, to, to paint before these people. And then we see in verse 27, in the middle of verse 27, we see a shimmer of hope. God s s makes a statement in there that shows you His mercy. And, uh, and this is needed because Jeremiah has been very negative. You know, he's been just, I mean, he's been preaching to these people for them to repent. He's used all this imagery. He's talking about how they forsook the covenant of God how they were the wayward wife and, and, and using all these pictures. And so he's been preaching judgment. And so now he's, he's, he's painting the picture and then he gives a, a shimmer of hope. He, he's pointing to the end about the fact that God is merciful. Even in God's punishment to his people, he's still merciful. And then he gets back on topic in the last verse, uh, verse 28. And he, he reminds us, in fact, this is really the first, if I can remember right, this is the first where Jeremiah and God is saying, okay, you've had your chance, 
And remember now, Jeremiah is not chronological. So we may in the future, in the future chapters, we may go back to earlier times. But what he is saying here is, okay, it's now determined. Judgment, you've had your chance, and judgment is now a certainty. That's pretty scary. And so again, he paints this dystopian picture that's very bleak. And it's like a worldwide cataclysm. Uh, so let's just jump in and see. Uh, you know, and I just, I, I would have loved to have heard Jeremiah preaching it. I, you No doubt, uh, he was the weeping prophet. He had to be shedding tears during this part. You know, and, and he cared for these people. And he was seeing it. They didn't get it. You know, he was, he, in fact, you know, he was probably looking at their faces and there was no response at all. And that might have grieved him even more. Let's begin in verse 23, the bleak picture. I beheld, we see this verse after verse. I beheld, I beheld, I beheld. So we're getting this picture now. We're ready to enter into the twilight zone. We're ready to enter into an alternate reality. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Well, that's interesting. That certainly sounds familiar, doesn't it? I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Where do we hear that before? Well, if you're familiar with the Genesis account of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 2, little verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then verse 2 says this, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then, in the second part of verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So we've got the beginning. And we've got, like, if you can imagine, a black canvas. You know, uh, nothing's been done yet. God hasn't worked to begin His creation other than, um, it, you know, it's, it's like He's starting with a black canvas. The earth was without form and void. And this is the exact phraseology that Jeremiah uses in verse 23. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. That's amazing to me. So what's he saying? Well, first of all, understand that um, he's going back. He, he's trying to get us into this, you know, relating it to God when he first created the world. But he just uses that first part. He's, he's laying out the picture because he wants us to realize that their world is going to change drastically. And he wants to get the scene, it seems, that he wants to get them thinking about what happened before God began to do his wonderful creative work. Now I love, many of you know, I love, um, just as I study church history and I realize that um, in, our, in our hermeneutics class, I want to quote a couple points that we brought out because in light of what, what I'm going to say now. Uh, in hermeneutics class, I made this quote. It's a great quote. I'll tie it in in a minute. But, um, and I forgot who wrote this, but it, it is a quote from someone else. Someone said, Misinterpreting the Bible is essentially no better than not believing it. Because if you believe something it doesn't say, you have missed what it does say. I want to read that again, and then there's a second part. Misinterpreting the Bible is essentially no better than not believing it. Because if you believe something it doesn't say, you have missed what it does say. 
So while believing what it doesn't say, you don't believe what it does say. You get that? In other words, it is so important that you and I give the utmost care in properly interpreting the Scriptures. You and I are not infallible interpreters of the Word of God. So there are. it's very likely that we could get it wrong. In fact, in my mind, it's like, how many times have I gotten it wrong? And the Lord had to correct me. And hopefully you admit, you know, you and I are fallible. So with that, um, I've made this statement, and I want to get this in your head. This is important. Whatever the Bible meant when it was initially given, exactly what it means now. In other words, the Bible, um, the text can never mean what it never meant. You know, when you hear somebody saying, uh, I've got new truth, you know, I have a new way to interpret this verse that no one has ever seen before. Big red lights ought to be going off in your mind. Whoa, something's wrong here. Because the Bible, you know, again, um, whatever the Bible meant when it was initially given is exactly what it means now. So the key, and this is the whole thing of hermeneutics, the key is we've got to go back to the original text and say, what did God mean when he said this? Or what did the author mean when he said this? Um, every text of Scripture has one interpretation, and before you can get anything from a text, you need to find out what that interpretation is. So, because truth doesn't change, and the text has always meant what it always meant, uh, I love going back to, particularly the old places in church history, before there was English. Because in English, we read uh, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, or the, the earth 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And we read Jeremiah quoting that, verse 23, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. Very similar. Now I go back to uh, the, the oh, almost a thousand years when Greek, before there was English, before there was Latin, where the main common language was Greek. And they had a Greek version of the Old Testament, and they had a Greek version of Genesis and the Greek version of, um, of Jeremiah. And this is what it said. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Greek-speaking world looked at this text. And, and it said, in the Greek, it said, I looked at the earth and behold nothing. That was the translation that, that they had for, for centuries. Then when Latin came along, and they had the Latin Bible for 1,100 years before there was English, it read this way, this text. It read, and behold, it was empty and nothing. Very similar, but just another wording. But here's the picture. God wants to bring us back for some reason to that time. He wants to bring Judah back to that time. And he wants to lay out this picture. If they can get, he's, I, I get the idea that he's just, he's trying to shake them and say, you know, he's trying to, he's get, getting all these different angles because he wants them to get it. Don't you understand? Your world is going to be rattled so radically. The way you're heading, and now it's a done deal. You are headed to this alternate world. It's Things are going to be different. Your world is going to be shaken. In fact, he uses that picture. And I want to read a couple commentators. Uh, they made some really good points on this. Um, one, uh, one writer said this, one commentator on, on Jeremiah said, about this bleak picture. He said, The horror lies not in what it is, but in the contrast with a creation that has made, been made into something shapely and beautiful. So he's contrasting it. In Genesis 1, 
God created the world, and it was a beautiful picture. It was canvas, and it was God's major handiwork. And now God is showing a different picture. He says, it's as if God has not yet said, let there be light. Darkness is all there is. All you can see is gloom. Now, so he's talking about before God started creating the world and, and, and men and light and the earth. And so he says, uh, all you can see is gloom, which again is not evil. It's just, well, gloomy. I love that. Theological scholar commenting on the Bible, and he says, uh, all you can see is gloom, which again is not evil, it's just, well, gloomy. You know, and that's the picture he's painting. It is a gloomy picture. But it speaks of the absence of God, who has not come in, in it with his order and beauty. According to this phrase, the situation in which the earth finds itself is the very opposite of promising. In fact, it is quite hopeless. That's John Golden Gay. And that's, that's what Jeremiah is doing. He is creating this dystopian world in their mind because that's going to be their world. And folks, when things happen, when the judgment of God falls, when God speaks, when God does things to show His mighty power, our world is turned upside down and everything changes. I'll give you a few examples in a minute. So he's going back to the third day before he's created light and he's creating this picture of God's judgment. And then verse 24, he says, I beheld the mountains and lo, they trembled and all the hills moved lightly. Uh, so what's, what's he mean by the... I beheld the mountains and they trembled and all the hills moved lightly. He's speaking about the most stable parts of the earth. You know, you think about it. We talk about a rock. The Lord's our fortress, a rock. Mm-hmm. We think of the mountains, and that's what we think of stability. And God is telling us, you know, he's giving us these pictures that things that we normally think of as being stable are now skipping around like, you know, with, with like flowers or tumbleweed or something. That's not a good picture, and I, and I love what another... Um, Another commentator made this picture. He said, Mountains and hills stand for stability, but in Jeremiah's picture, they are quaking and light-footed, agile, able to jump up and down. Not what you want for your hills and mountains. You know, I like that. It's true. You know, when I, when I order my hills and mountains, I want stability, right? That's what we're thinking. That's what it's a picture of. Stability. And, and Jeremiah's saying, the mountains are going to quake and the hills are going to skip lightly. Your world is going to be shaken. It is a very dystopian picture. Verse. In fact, um, in uh, this is not just an image, the imagery of Jeremiah. When God speaks and God responds in judgment, uh, He uses this imagery. Listen to Psalm 18 and verse 6. The psalmist says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken, because he was wroth. God was angry. 
There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of the, out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. You know what I remember? I think of the picture in Exodus 20, when Moses was up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and this exact thing happened. The mountain shake, shook, and the people... In Exodus 20 and verse 20, they, they, they stood back and they, they quaked in fear. That's what Moses said, fear not. Because God has come to prove you, test you, and that his fear may be before your faces. The fear of the Lord is a wholesome understanding of God's holiness and not wanting to displease him. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 10, a little bit later, Verse 10, it says, But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God, and an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. Look at verse 25 now, Jeremiah 4.25. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds. So we say this, I beheld, I beheld, I beheld. There was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. So this this is a... Again, this is dystopian. This is the most stark, lonely, empty picture you can imagine. All the people fled. And by the way, all of this, we now know, would be fulfilled in 586 B.C. We actually know the date. And we know how it was fulfilled. It was a king named Nebuchadnezzar, who was uh, of the leading power of Babylon, and he, would, he and his armies would come down and decimate Judah. And this stuff would be reality. So we've got this dystopian picture. We've got the place of Judah, a desert, a ghost town. If you can picture that. Because I believe Jeremiah is clearly trying to, to get them to realize if they could just picture it in their mind. And be a little afraid and, you know, realize this is, this is where you're heading to. And it reminds me of some dystopian scenes. I think back to a horrible time in American history in the 1860s, our Civil War. And, of course, first thing I think of is, uh, you know, pictures. I think of the pictures that have been captured of Antietam. That was the bloodiest battle in the Civil War. Uh, where two, uh, over 22,000, the official estimate, one was uh, 22,717 casualties in one day. We killed each other, basically. There was uh, 12,401 Union soldiers, 10,316 Confederates. And I don't know if you've ever seen some of the pictures of the Antietam battlefield after the battle. There's just, it's just, it is a utop- it's a dystopian picture. There's just, battle- there's just bodies scattered all across the field and there's the gully and and it's it just jarred me when I saw it. Imagine being there. And then a couple months later was another battle, the Battle of Fredericksburg. And there's another there's a scene that in my mind really paints this what these poor men and women, the men that fought must have gone through. It was on December thirteenth 1862, a guy by the name of Richard Roland Kirkland uh, fought in the Confederacy and uh, was part of Fredericksburg. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Confederate troops 
had formed at a stone wall at the base of a place called Mary's Heights near Fredericksburg, Virginia. And the action that followed, uh, they inflicted heavy casualties on the Union attackers. And on that night, December 13th, one, one account says, walking wounded made their way to the field hospital while those who were disabled were forced to remain on the battlefield. So imagine there's thousands of people. You just got done fighting for your life. Some of your comrades were slaughtered. And there's this, this, this battlefield with wounded soldiers. Some of them, the ones that were able to physically carry themselves or take themselves to the, to the hospital. But on the next morning, December 14th, over 8,000 Union soldiers had been shot in front of the stone wall at Mary's Heights. And many of those remaining on the battlefield were still alive but suffering terribly from their wounds and their lack of water. And so the, you got the north over here, you got the south over here, and they're looking at their comrades all laying out, and they're just moaning. But nobody, they couldn't go get their guys, because if you were a Confederate and you want to try to rescue or at least give water to your guy, you'd get shot. And you got the Union guys over there, and so they're for hours. They're just sitting there looking at this. I cannot imagine the scene that that must have been. And apparently, this man, Richard Kirkland, uh, it, it just got to him. He was a Confederate soldier. And he went to um, he went to General Joseph Kershaw and he said, I've got to help these wounded guys. Would you let me please uh, go out there and, 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 and give them water at least? These guys are crying and they're dying. And Kirkland was, uh, the general was like, you're going to get shot. He said, can I take a white handkerchief and for some reason, the general didn't want him to do that. And so this, this Confederate soldier just went around gathering canteens full of water, just walked out on the battlefield. Uh, he couldn't take it anymore. And he began to offer aid and water, not just to the Union troops. I mean, not just to Confederate troops, but to the Union troops. And everybody watched, expecting uh, the other side to start shooting, and then there'd be a, the, the battle would continue. Nobody shot. In fact, for an hour and a half, by himself, the story is told, this guy would go, go fill up canteens, bring blankets and, and warm clothes, and he would just do what he could to offer relief. And, uh, and he went down in history. He is, to this day, he is a hero and the, the angel of Mary Heights. Now, some dispute this, uh, but there is a primary source communication from that general and so forth that uh, it, it seems that for the most part this was true. Maybe it became like a fish story and got bigger and bigger. But this man's acts were very heroic. But I just picture, and when I think of the Fredericksburg, I think of Antietam. And I just think of these battlefields, and it's just so stark. It's nighttime. There's been death, destruction. You've just been decimated. Now, folks, that's exactly what would happen in 586 B.C., to the nation of Judah, as foretold by a prophet that loved them enough to warn them year after year after year. In fact, for decades. And they did not heed it. Verse 26. We continue with the dystopian picture. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness. And all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord. This is interesting. The fruitful place was a wilderness. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, 
you don't need to do this, but in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, God, uh, in the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry or message there, challenged them. God said, I, I led you through the wilderness to a bountiful, fruitful land. And, and this is what I get. You may remember, we, we focused on that a while back. But it's like he's reversing this now. And he's now bringing the dystopian view of this and basically re, 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 um, rehashing Israel's history that you know God took them through the wilderness into a fruited plain, the land of Canaan, and now the fruitful place was a wilderness. And all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by His fierce anger. In other words, if you're familiar with Israel and, and Palestine, they have these things called tells, which are signs of ancient civilizations. Uh, and apparently, if, if you've studied archaeology at all, it's fascinating that there would be cities that would um, you know, kind of just be buried under and then a new city would be built on top of them. And so all around Israel, you've got in Palestine, you've got these these tells, which are like these big mountains or these just really a lot high hills, and many of them are archaeological digs right now. Some of them have not even begun or started, but they were all once ancient civilizations. And now this is, seems to be the picture that Jeremiah is. You know, this is what he's seeing. This is what it'll become of you, Judah, if you don't repent. And get right with the Lord. Uh, it is it is a sad picture, but again, I just I get this idea very clearly that God through Jeremiah is trying to get their attention, and He's trying every different angle, so that when He finally does bring His judgment, uh, they can never say, "Well, why didn't you tell us?" He gave them fair warning. So talking about dystopian pictures. Something happened during my adult life that I will never forget. And I'm not talking about September 11th. That was, if you remember, that was one. I may talk about that at the end, depending on time. But uh, this was after that, a few years after that. And I remember when it happened, nothing of that magnitude had happened in my lifetime. And it was uh, what is called the... um, 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, or the it's been called uh, the Boxing Day tsunami, Christmas Day tsunami, Indonesian tsunami. But you might remember that on December 26, there was a, um, a a major earthquake off the west coast of Sumatra, Indonesia, and the shock had a what's called a moment magnitude of 9.1 and 9.3. And uh, the undersea megathrust earthquake was caused when the Indian plate was subducted by the Burma plate. Uh, this is like cataclysmic stuff that's going on under the earth. And we know who controls that, don't we? The one that created it. And um, it triggered a series of devastating tsunamis along the coasts of most land masses bordering the Indian Ocean, killing 230,000 people to 280,000 people in 14 countries. I remember when that happened, and there is there was video coming out. There's still videos all around YouTube of people, that event. And when you see, it is such a dystopian picture. You know, I mean, watching it, you see the tsunami coming, and you see people just being swept away, and, 
entire villages being washed away, and you knew that what we are watching on this day, think about it, over 230,000 people, that is amazing. That is so many people. I remember being devastated and just, when it happened, I'm thinking, I, I cannot comprehend that massive amount of people dying in, in one day. I just cannot fathom it. I cannot fathom it. Now, at that point in 2004, the world's population was 6.4 billion. Now, back in Jeremiah's time, the world population was 100 million. That's a big difference, isn't it? By the way, talk about how quickly, you know, exponential growth in, in um, you know, 350, 380 to 90 B.C., the world was 100 million population. 2004, it was 6.4. And now, in 2023, it's over 8 billion, just in that short amount of time. I mean, that's, that, 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 the amount of people is just it's mind-boggling, isn't it? To, to me, it is. But I often think of, I, again, I've watched, the, I don't know if you've seen any of the movies of those, or the videos of the home movies of the tsunami, and, you just, and, and then the aftermath, you just see what water can do. Man, water is powerful. And that was not a worldwide flood. But, you know, the, imagine the days after that, the families that were left behind, the villages, if there was any remaining people, entire families had been wiped out, washed out to sea. And, and just imagine the scene that the people just, many of them just walked around in shock. Their homes are gone, and it was a dystopian world. Their whole world changed. That was in 2004. And I still, I still cannot get over that. I still, my heart breaks. Now, you know what, in 2004, you know what we were doing? Most of us, we were just going on our merry way, living in America, living in our cocoon, right? I mean, whatever we were doing, do you, maybe, maybe something happened to you in 2004, but we were living our cushioned life, weren't we? We were enjoying what we were enjoying, where we were enjoying it. And while this tragedy was going on and people's worlds were turned upside down, we're going on our own business. You know. Now, here, this is interesting because what had happened to Israel, they already had their dystopia. But now Judah was going on like nothing affected them. And God was saying, get ready. Because what happened to them, it's going to happen to you. Now look at verse 27, Jeremiah 4, 27. But thus saith the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. You know, he's, he's taking what's going to happen to Judah and magnifying it as if it was a worldwide cataclysm, but he's not, he's not talking. There would be end time judgment. First Peter, uh, you know, the, the scriptures are very clear that the world is going to be judged, the whole world. But this is just Judah. The, the earth, for this earth, this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black. Oh, actually, back up. I meant to look at verse 27. That's the shimmer of hope. We've got to look at this. For thus saith the Lord, for thus hath the Lord said, This whole land shall be desolate. Now, look at this. If you read through it, you might miss it, because it's just a little statement. Yet will I not make a full end. What's he saying there? The idea of that, the, the wording in the Hebrew is, I will not execute complete destruction, is what he's saying. I'm going to judge you, 
But do not worry. It will not be total. It will not be, you know, I am not going to execute utter destruction. I will not make a full end. And again, that's the mercy of God. Uh, he would say in Leviticus 26, 44, long before this would happen, when he made a covenant with the people of Israel, he said this, And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, that would be the time of Jeremiah, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. What an awesome thing. That's a promise. God, And, and we've seen it historically. God always has a remnant. And, and he always does. Now we go back on topic and we close up with verse 28. He says, for, for this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken it. And now this is the first, it seems, where, and we're going to get to this too down in Jeremiah, he's now determining it and then he's going to later tell them how he's going to do it. Actually, he knew. He was planning. He's going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. This wicked enemy is going to be who I'm going to use to punish you. For this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken it. I have purposed it. I will not repent. Neither will I turn back from it. You know, the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And too many people have not reckoned with the holiness of God and the judgment of God. Um, they take things so lightly. Uh, they think, well, God, God, God would never send anyone to hell, would he? God would not, you know, judge people, would he? If he's holy, he can do none but. He has to punish sin. And again, it is a Hebrews ten thirty one. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want to take you back. I, I was an adult. We have a lot of younger people in our church that uh, weren't alive during this time, but um, I was an adult during September eleventh. And uh, many of you were. Do you remember that day? I have the events listed here real, real briefly. September 11th. I remember at 9 o'clock in the morning getting a call from John Wyatt, who is with the Lord right now. But John called me and he said, uh, Pastor, you may want to turn your TV on right now. And, of course, we turned it on. And uh, there on the news, it was the news cycle, and uh, there was showing one of the Twin Towers was burning uh, he called me after he called me just just after nine at eight forty six everything began on september eleventh at eight forty six flight eleven crashed into floors ninety three through ninety nine of the north tower then at nine o three flight one seventy five crashes into floors seventy seven through eighty five of the south tower in fact many of us we had the TVs on and and I did, at least I remember seeing the second plane hit the tower. Then at 9.37, this is all in the space of just hours. Mm -hmm. 9.37, American Airlines Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. The crash and fire kill 59 on the plane and 125 people on the ground. At 9.42 that morning, uh, the FAA grounds all flights. Never happened in my lifetime. Never happened in, in many of yours. Remember that? That was so unusual. Then at 9.59, unprepared, and none of us were expecting that the South Tower collapsed in 10 seconds. Then at 10.03, United Airlines Flight 93 crashes near Shanksville. Then at 
we watched this, the, uh, the North Tower collapse. And do you remember? I still remember when that happened. You are literally shell-shocked and you're thinking, okay, I remember thinking, this is going to go on all day. I mean, who knows? This is, we are being attacked, clearly, and I did not think there would be an end for a while. Do you remember that feeling? This is what God is trying to do to Judah. Because they were living in relative peace. They were enjoying the, the worldly comforts. And yet they were forsaking their relationship with God. They were practicing abominations with the pagan gods. God was deeply grieved. Folks, I believe, and I saw this on September 11th, America had a chance for a wake-up call. And for just a brief time, people got serious about their relationship with God. Many people did. It did not last. And now we are back. You know, there, there were stickers and bumper stickers that came out after that. We will not forget. America has forgotten. And you know what? I don't believe, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm convinced that God is a sovereign God. He's in charge. And because of what America is doing and in, in clenching its fist at God, I believe the worst is still ahead. If we have a holy God, and if America does not repent, I believe, and if we do not get serious about the gospel, and God does not bring revival, I believe this dystopia could be America. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that as Judah needed a wake-up call, so America needs a wake-up call. Even your church needs a wake-up call in America, God's people. Uh, we are loving pleasure and entertainment and the things of the world. And I pray, Father, that we would get serious about our relationship with you, that we would get uh, vigilant and we would get militant about preaching the gospel, getting serious about sin, living for you, forsaking idols. And Father, I pray we would bring glory and honor to you in these last days. And I ask your blessing tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand. Please take out your hymn books. And we'll